Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of Northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. All right, so last week we were in Ephesians chapter 4, and we got through verse 15, or verse 16 actually, and I promised to pick it up at verse 17, but I'm not going to, I'm actually going to back up for a second. The focus of the study that we've been doing this time through, mostly Ephesians, has been the relationship between Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the parable of the sower, and Yeshua's letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. My assertion has been that all three of those letters or parables deal with the same subject to the same group of people. The the parable of the sower, of course, deals with the word of God, and then Yeshua's letter to the church at Ephesus tells them that they are doing a really, really good job on the word, but they have lost their first love, and the thing we talked about is the thing that they have lost is their relationship among people. So they're not doing the horizontal stuff, they're doing the vertical stuff really well, they're doing the study really well. So in light of that, in chapter 4, in the second paragraph, which is starts at verse 9, we spent some time talking about you know, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers last time. And where I want to go, it, let me just read verse 11 starting with verse 11 in chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Messiah, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 14 is where I want to camp for just a minute. The thing that the church at Ephesus is good at by the time John records Yeshua's letter is they're really good at not being blown around by doctrine. In other words, they remember his, his I know that, you know, I know your works, this is what you're doing good, that you take these people who say they are apostles and are not and have proven them false. That's his, his commendation. He actually has two commendations in there, but that's the first of them. So what Paul is saying here is when you grow to maturity, you are not blown about by every uh, wind of doctrine. You know, actually, he uses a naval metaphor. We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. And so what he's, what he's talking about here to the Ephesians is you need to grow up, you need to become mature, so that you're able to stand against all this stuff. And what I'm suggesting is by the time Yeshua dictates his letter in Revelation, they have got that down pat. They are mature. They are able to discern good doctrine from bad doctrine. They're able to say, you're not an apostle. You're selling the wrong stuff. 
and so forth. So they've done this. They've, they've sort of taken this letter to heart, if you will, and they're doing well. But of course, they've missed the part of love within the community. And that's what we're going to talk about next. And by the way, the, the letter you know, goes up and down, and it weaves these themes all the way through it. I'm just simply pointing out that this is another instance. So now I'm down to verse 16, or verse 15, I'm sorry. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, while each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And what I'm suggesting to you is when Yeshua finds it necessary to write him a letter, that's the part that they've missed. They've got the, we are mature in the, in the word, we really know this stuff, but we are not, in fact, built together in love like we should be. So now verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Right now, if you back up to chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now he's going to return to that theme here in chapter 4, starting in verse 17. So again, he hits these things and he goes from one to the other and back and so forth, but he's doing this, I think, by way of emphasis, because again, remember, at the end of chapter 3, you had what appeared to be the closing of a letter. So at the end of chapter 3, he says, you know, I'll read it to you. I'm in verse 20, chapter 320. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the assembly and in Messiah Yeshua throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So it sort of feels like at that point he's wound up the letter and I've heard preachers say that at that point the Holy Spirit tapped him on the shoulder and says you're not done. And he then continues but he's going back over some of the same subject matter and some of the same themes that he did earlier. Now I'm back to verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So again, I pointed you back to chapter 2 where we're on this same subject. Now verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Again, back in chapter 2, he was talking about them as Gentiles being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel without hope, okay, because they were alienated from God. So now he's coming back to them and saying, oh, by the way, you're still living among the Gentiles, but you need to come out of the Gentiles and not behave like they do. The Gentiles, in verse 18 now, the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God. And remember back in chapter 2, he said you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
So this alienation, if you will, from God and the people of God and the things of God, he's returned to her. So alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now what the grammar says there is they are willfully ignorant. Okay, go back to Romans. Okay, remember in Romans 1. In fact, let's go there for a minute. Same preacher, different, different audience. And in Romans 1, it actually starts in, in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So if you marry that with Ephesians 4, where he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So their ignorance is a function of the hardness of their heart. And in Romans 1, he's saying, hey, you did that to yourself. And not only that, you did it on purpose so that you would not have to acknowledge God. What Paul is saying in Romans on the same subject is you walk out of your door and you look at the world and it is very, very obvious that God is. And if you don't see that, you are being willfully ignorant. Now, it is in fact true that walking out of your door and looking at the world doesn't tell you about the Son of God. It doesn't tell you about his atoning sacrifice. It doesn't tell you about the Torah. There's a whole bunch of stuff it doesn't tell you about, but one thing it does tell you about is God. God is. And not only God is, but God is benevolent. You can deduce that from the, from the creation. As I say, there's a whole lot of detail, and the detail is really, really important, and you can't deduce all those details. And what he's talking about now is, in Ephesians, these people who have come out of paganism into the knowledge of Yeshua and the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what he's saying is, don't go back to those people and don't, not, not back to those people as in don't live among them, but don't go back to their ways and don't listen to them because they are ignorant. And the reason that they are ignorant is because they have hardened their hearts. And the only thing I can say there is that amounts to willful ignorance. And here, I'm not doing anything weird. I'm just doing grammar here. So in Ephesians, I'm, all I'm doing is unpacking the grammar. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. I mean, that's all I'm doing is reading the grammar there. And again, all I'm saying here is, at least here in the United States, the Bible is widely available. There have been times and places where it's not, but here it is. And if you read it and don't do it, then you're walking in disobedience. Now, with due allowance for the fact that we're in exile. So it, it is not, in fact, possible or appropriate 
to walk around with big stones in your pocket looking for homosexuals because we are in exile and we are not under our own laws here. And Paul, isn't, Paul here is not talking about Baptists. Paul here is talking about pagans. Where am I? Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Messiah, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Yeshua. All right, so again, grammar here. He's saying that they have become callous because of the hardness of their heart, and they have gone over to sensuality, greed, and every kind of impurity. And, and all of this is because of the original hardness of their heart. And then 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Messiah. And then in mine, I have a dash, and it's an aside. So that's not the way you learned Messiah, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in, in Yeshua. Okay? Again, I'm just doing grammar here. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, the one he's talking about with the Gentiles, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, what he's doing here is he is exhorting them to look at the Gentiles from whom they came, look at their behavior, understand that their behavior is due to hardness of heart, and they are not then to walk in that way. And he is instead exhorting them to put on a new self and renounce all these desires and be renewed in the spirit. Where am I here? Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. All right, let's stop there for a minute. Again, the question here is who's the neighbor? And there are two ways that I can see it, and I, I can't differentiate them in the grammar. Way number one is your pagan neighbors. In other words, speak among your pagan neighbors truthfully, as in when they ask you what, what you're doing, explain it truthfully and give them basically the gospel. That's one way to look at it, and, it's, and I think that's sound. The other way to look at it is he has separated this community that he's writing to from the Gentiles. So the neighbors may be within the community, in other words, the other Ephesian believers, and he's saying, you need to speak the truth among yourselves. I have no idea which way he meant it. It, it works either way. Again, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And that would sort of lend some weight to the idea that he's talking within the community. But it doesn't have to be. So be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that all about? Again, the, the lesson I draw from it, and you don't have to draw this lesson, is when you get angry, deal with it. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it is pure homiletic advice which is to say, you're mad at somebody, get it sorted out, don't go to bed. So be angry or do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
I'm suggesting to you that that's all of a single thought, and it all has to do with anger. Uh, one of the things that I find is the longer I stew on things, the more opportunity unclean spirits have to talk me into things. And if I go to sleep with anger in my mind and bitterness in my heart, about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning I wake up and my mind is just going over and over and over again and it's getting nastier and nastier and nastier. And so this, this whole idea of deal with it quickly so you don't give Satan an opportunity to work on you overnight, which is when you sleep, which is when your defenses are down. And again, at least for me, you know, I wake up in the wee hours of the morning when I've got something like that stewing on my brain, and I'll just, you know, lay awake in bed and chew on it for a long time. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being angry. You know, God gave you all of those emotions because you occasionally need all of them. When anger is the first tool you reach for in your toolbox, that's maybe not good. But it certainly is one of your tools. All right, uh, where am I here? Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And again, we're talking about, remember this is all in the context of you used to be these dirty, rotten, scoundrel Gentiles. So I am assuming that you used to be thieves, you used to be liars, you used to be prostitutes, you used to be all of those things. So he's saying, all right, you guys used to be thieves. You need to take up an occupation and earn some money so that you have something to give away. And again, this goes back to the admonition that we have from Yeshua in the letter to the Ephesians. And his assertion there, assertion, I guess Yeshua doesn't assert things. His statement there is that you've lost your first love. And in order to fix that, you need to go back and do the works that you did before. So works is a specific to having lost their first love. And here he's talking to a thief, and he's saying, you need to get a job. Not, I mean, certainly it's implied, so you're not stealing, but that's not what he says here. He says, you need to get a job so you got some surplus to give away. And that goes back to the works that Yeshua is talking about in Revelation. So I, I'm... I'm simply drawing a parallel here. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give, give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, now remember back in chapter one of Ephesians, he talked about them having an inheritance, but not having obtained possession of it, and having been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that they did have an inheritance. So now we're back to the Holy Spirit again, and he's saying, first off, don't grieve him, and it is he, the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So again, he's referring back to this sealing of the Holy Spirit that happened back in chapter 1. All right, now let's talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. What do we do with that? I will suggest to you that this says something about God. That God can be grieved. And furthermore, that your behavior can cause God grief. And what that says is, it's exactly the opposite of what much of the Sunday church believes. 
the God of the Old Testament is sitting up there with a smite button, just waiting for you to step out of line, and he's going to, you know, call fire down on your head or something like that. And so what, he, what Paul is saying here, I think, is, in fact, your bad behavior, when you do behave badly, grieves the heart of God. And rather than being wrathful and angry about it, it's made him sad and sorrowful, which indicates that those of you who are parents, I mean, your children go astray, and certainly it may make you angry for a period of time, but it also grieves you because they are not living up to the potential that you see in them. As I said, I'm not suggesting that, that God doesn't take people to the woodshed occasionally. He certainly does. But the idea here is, first, that bad behavior grieves him because he loves you and he wants you to succeed. Now, the comment was that uh, if you put disappoint in there instead of grieve, it may make, may make more sense to the modern speaker. And I agree. I agree. The idea that your behavior can disappoint God is, I think, what he's saying here. All the way down to verse 31. But all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Messiah forgave you. And again, we're talking about speech here. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Okay, we're all talking about speech here. And then back in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, clamor, slander be put away. So what he's talking about here is your speech. And he's specifically talking about what do you say to each other? And if your words to each other are for building up and edifying and solidifying the group, that's pleasing. If they are tearing at each other and tearing apart the congregation, then that grieves the Holy Spirit. Onward. Chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Messiah loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, again, what he's talking about is how do you live in a community? How do you show love to one another? And he talks about works, you know, the thief getting a job so that he's got something to give away, speech that builds up and all that kind of stuff. So therefore, follows that, and he's telling them to walk in love one amongst the other. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And again, two things there. Sexual immorality and covetousness. And we've talked about covetousness being the tenth commandment. And we've talked before about the ten commandments being a list. There's three lists of ten in scripture that I know of. And the tenth one of each of those lists represents the culmination and intensification of the first nine. So the first ten is, of course, the ten words of creation, which culminates in the creation of humanity. 
then you have the ten plagues of Egypt, which culminates in the death of the firstborn. And then you have the Ten Commandments, which culminates in don't covet. So if you don't covet, a whole bunch of the other stuff doesn't have an opportunity to happen. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. And it's interesting if you go to Revelation, and I think it's in 22. So I'm in Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, and dogs, by the way, are male homosexuals. That's a slang term. Catamites. So outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now compare that with what Paul is saying back here in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 5, chapter 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. Okay, so again, what he's basically doing is saying the same thing that John is going to say in Revelation. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And again, remember this whole riff started off with, you came out of the Gentiles, don't go back among them as far as your practice and worship is concerned. And again, he's not saying get away from them, don't have anything to do with them. Simply, you have to come out spiritually and behaviorally, and you can't go back to doing the stuff they used to do. So, anyway, six. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Them being who? The sons of disobedience. In a grammatical sense, them is the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in Messiah, or in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And again, this goes back to the letter that Yeshua writes, and in fact, they took that one to heart, right? Not having anything to do with the works of darkness and exposing them. You, you say you're an apostle, you're not. So they've taken some of this to heart and done really well, but not entirely. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Messiah will shine on you. That particular phrase doesn't exist anywhere else in Scripture. There are things that come close to it. Uh, you know, kumiori that we sing, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Again, that's not quite the same. Malachi, the son of righteousness, will, will arise with healing in his wings. Isaiah 51, 52, 60. So there are 
things in scripture that sort of hit all the way around it, but there isn't anything that says exactly that. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making holy melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, submitting to one another out of reverence for Messiah. So that, although none of it is a direct quote, could be right out of Proverbs. And again, one of my beliefs is Paul has got the Gentile franchise. Peter's got the Hebrew franchise. Paul has got the Gentile franchise. And so one of the things that Paul does is he is trying to pack as much Torah and scripture into his letters as he can because these folks generally don't know much. And so I'm suggesting to you that he whipped open the book of Proverbs and, I mean, I probably had it memorized, but, you know, shot a whole bunch of that stuff in there, the wisdom of Solomon in there, because this isn't part of their tradition. So I'm suggesting that kind of thing is going on also in his letters. All right, so now we're in 21. We're talking about submitting to one another out of reverence. Now in 22, we're still talking submission, but wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So you have the, the subject of submission starts off with to one another. And we've told you this story before, but when Ray and I started this church, the first thing we did was look for elders. And the idea being that we have somebody to whom we are accountable and to whom we will submit. And so he's saying that in a properly run body of Messiah, everybody is under submission to somebody else. So now we come down and he's giving you some marriage advice, marriage counseling. And I don't know why marriage counseling is in the middle of this, but it is. Like I say, I, I, I sort of think that Paul is just sort of firehosing this guy, these guys with scripture, you know, just or, or uh, Hebrew wisdom or, or whatever you want to call it. So we, we now have marriage counseling in the middle of this letter, which is fine. So 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Messiah is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church or the assembly, ecclesia, submits to Messiah, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And again, we, we, Jill and I, a number of years ago, did a marriage seminar. And I'm sure you all know this, but men and women are different. Women operate on love, men operate on respect. And he's talking about that difference here. And so what he starts off with is this submission is, another way to say that is respect. And he will explicitly at the end of the paragraph say respect. In other words, that word will show up at the end of this paragraph. 
So the, the lead idea here is wives respecting their husbands. And now we're going to have a section in the middle that says, husbands, love your wives. So husbands need respect, wives need love. And what he's talking about is how to do both of those. So 25, husbands, love your wives as Messiah loved the assembly and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And again, if you're talking in terms of earthly husbands and wives, the idea is the husband protects the purity and chastity of his wife and defends her talking about the same thing. 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Messiah does the assembly. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And again, that's a quote from Genesis. 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Messiah and the church. So what he's doing is he is equating the human marriage relationship, which is described in Genesis, and he's equating that with the relationship of Messiah with the body or the church that he put together. And again, one of the things we've said is you can explain the entirety of Scripture in terms of agriculture and family. And they're used over and over and over and over again for examples because everything fits into that that model 32 or 33 however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband so that's the end of chapter 6 and that's where he comes back to this idea of men need respect from their wives which he led with back in verse 22 I'm not going to start on chapter 6 would somebody like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.